You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. In this talk, we're going to be talking about management of papillosquamous eruptions and skin of color. All right. So I put this slide in here because, you know, uh, obviously, you know, most people in this room um, uh, practice dermatology and see dermatology patients. Um, but what you sometimes will get from people who don't practice dermatology is like, all itchy rashes look alike, right? So it's like eczema looks like psoriasis, looks like, you know, tinea corporis. You know, everybody makes a joke, like if it's wet, dry it. If it's dry, wet it. Um, and so I think that sometimes people think about um, kind of dermatology and skin of color in the same way, right? Um, but once, you know, obviously once we start practicing dermatology, you're able to kind of make these distinctions between gutate psoriasis and numbular eczema and tinea corporis pretty easily. And so the same thing can be said with skin of color. Once you start being aware of kind of some of the nuances to look for, it becomes um, more easy to kind of be able to diagnose these different papillosquamous diseases um, and also to make recommendations that are appropriate. And so the objectives today are going to be to discuss cl uh, clinical findings of common pap uh, papillosquamous diseases um, and kind of discuss the differences in the clinical findings that you may see in different skin types. And then we're also briefly going to discuss management. And when I talk about kind of being a skin of color or a skin of color specialist or someone who's interested in skin of color, I think half of the battle is actually just being familiar with the cultural practices that people do so that you can make recommendations that patients can, um, uh, that patients can follow um, without um, issue. So um, I have some of these uh, common papillosquamous diseases that we will be covering. I also will be covering some of the differential diagnoses that um, uh, can stem off of these diagnoses. So we're going to start with seborrheic dermatitis. We've all seen seborrheic dermatitis. We talk about, the, you know, this is the kind of uh, greasy erythematous scale that happens in sebaceous areas of the skin, such as the scalp, the glabella, paranasal skin, and chest. Um, it can also happen in intertriginous areas. Very rarely can, um, uh, can uh, kind of progress to this exfoliative erythroderma. Um, as far as what makes it worse, we talk about humidity, changes in seasons, stress. Patients with um, neurologic disorders oftentimes can have worse um, seborrheic dermatitis. So patients with Parkinson's disease, patients that are immunos um, immunosuppressed may also have um, worse seborrheic dermatitis. Um, so I was, the one key is that if you have a patient that has really bad seborrheic dermatitis, consider doing HIV testing, because that may be um, an indication they may be immunocompromised. Um, we, you know, think the general kind of thought process of why it develops is that you have yeast overgrowth or pterosporomal valley overgrowth, and then that causes a dermatitis in patients who are susceptible. Um, in skin of color patients, the main thing to look for is that you may not have this, this you know, kind of erythema. And I think that that's going to, you know, be the, the overriding theme for a, a lot of the talks today is that erythema doesn't present in the same way in skin of color patients. So for skin of color patients or darker skin patients who have um, seborrheic dermatitis, instead of having that erythema, you may have hypopigmentation. Um, and the hypopigmentation will occur in areas where you normally would see seborrheic dermatitis. So we're talking about the glabella area, the beard area, the perineal nasal area. Um, there may be scale, um, and well, oftentimes there's scale, but occasionally there won't be any scale. They also talk about this uh, petaloid um, variant that can occur in darker skin um, individuals where you have this kind of floral, they call it, kind of uh, or petal-like appearance to the, um, the areas of involvement. Um, treatment. So treatment generally for a seborrheic dermatitis, as we all know, is um, antifungals, or at least that's one arm of the treatment, getting at the pterosporum um, ovale. Um, 
any type of antifungal kind of uh, shampoo can be um, helpful. So zinc, selenium sulfide, ketoconazole, salicylic acid, tar, um, sulfur. Um, when I make, when we talk about general recommendations to all patients, we talk about using the shampoo two or three times a week. Um, but obviously in skin of color patients, we want to make some adjustments to those recommendations, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, for the treatment on the face, um, you can do ketoconazole cream, you can do terbinafine cream, any type of antifungal cream. Um, in addition, as I said, antifungals are one arm of the treatment. The other arm of the treatment is using an anti-inflammatory agent. Um, topical steroids in particular on the face should be used sparingly, um, and, and that is including in your skin of color patients. So I oftentimes will use class six or seven topical steroids, so things like hydrocortisone, um, desonide cream, hydrocortisone 2.5% cream, and I typically have them use it twice a day for about one to two weeks, and hopefully we're able to scale back and just use the antifungal cream at that point. For some patients, they have persistent Consistent um, inflammation, and in those patients, I recommend um, them using it maybe no more than seven to eight times per month, and that's kind of how I tell the patient how to use it because it's an easy way for them to re remember that they can use it either one to two times per week or a week at a time during the month. The other thing that I like to use are kind of non-steroidal agents, things like tacrolimus or pembrolimus, because they could be um, good for maintenance as well. Um, for the scalp, um, the, you, you do want to use um, stronger topical steroids. We talked about this er, um, earlier. I prefer class one or class two topical steroids. Um, and the only exception there is this fluosinolone oil that we'll um, talk about. And obviously these topical steroids are available as lot, in lots of different kind of formats. So solutions, foams, ointments, and creams. Um, general recommendations is to use it twice a day for two to three weeks and then kind of go down to two to three times per week um, for maintenance. Now the considerations that you you want to make for your skin of color patients, um, and we talked, we've touched about, you know, on some of these um, already, are just the f frequency of shampooing. So I think one thing that you should always do with your um, skin of color patients is ask them, how often do you shampoo your hair? So sometimes patients are already shampooing their hair two or three times a week. If they're already doing that, then they, you can go ahead and do an antifungal shampoo two or three times a week as well. But if you have a patient who's washing their hair once a, once a month, um, I usually say that I like my, you know, skin of color patients to wash their hair at least every two to three weeks. So if they're doing once a month, I will see if they're willing or able to kind of uh, increase that frequency to once every two to three weeks. Um, you've also heard today that there is some debate about use of ketoconazole or other antifungal shampoos. Because again, we're you know, talking about hair types that are coilier, um, they're more prone to breakage, they're naturally drier because you're not getting as much of that sebum that goes down the hair, the, the hair shaft. Um, I do tend to use anti-dandruff shampoos, but as I mentioned earlier, I consider anti-dandruff shampoos scalp shampoos. They are not for the hair, um, so I have patients apply the um, anti-dandruff shampoo to the scalp and leave it on there for maybe 30 seconds to a minute and then rinse it off and then they can use whatever shampoo of their choice on the rest of their hair shaft. Um, there are also a number of anti-dandruff conditioners that are available now, so Dove has one. So that's something also to consider that patients can add that into their um, regimen. Um, and as far as the topical steroid, um, Again, thinking about the vehicle, what type of um, topical steroid are you going to recommend for patients? There is an assumption that ointments are just better for skin of color patients because a lot of uh, patients are used to um, using grease on their hair. But the truth is, is that hair styling methods are changing. So a lot of patients don't want their hair to feel weighed down. Um, they don't want to feel like they have a film on their hair or scalp. So I usually ask patients, what kind of styling do you do to your hair? If they're using a lot of heat or kind of thermal straightening to the hair, then you're not going to want to use any, um, any vehicle that's more wet. 
So like things like gels or uh, solutions um, or foams. You may want to use a cream and, or an ointment in that patient. Um, but if you have a patient who doesn't use heat, they may be able to use anything. Um, some patients will prefer an oil. And as I said earlier, the only formulation that comes in an oil is a fluocin alone. Um, but, and that is also fine to use. Um, and the really the importance of asking about that is that, again, this is about increasing compliance in your skin of color patients and also engendering kind of confidence so that they will be, so if you ask these type of questions, patients really kind of get excited about it because they're like, oh, okay, well, they understand that some of these kind of treatments may not work for me. And they're thinking about what will work specifically for me rather than making blanket kind of um, recommendations. So tinea versicolor, I put this on here because a lot of times when seborrheic dermatitis happens on the body, people think uh, you, or, uh, you, one of the differential diagnoses would be tinea versicolor. It's also caused by pitorosporum ovale. Um, various um, uh, subtypes, people talk about these salmon-colored macules, again, on areas of um, high sebaceous glands, such as the trunk, the upper body, or excuse me, upper back, the neck, and the face. Um, for potassium um, hydroxide or KOH, you'll see the spaghetti and meatballs appearance um, if you chose to KOH it. Um, so on lighter skin patients, most of the time you're going to see either this kind of salmon-colored um, appearance where you have these mac macules that are coalescing into large, um, larger uh, patches. Um, you may see that kind of the overlying scale. Um, you can also see the hypopigmented variant as well. Um, and this is another one of those hypopigmented variants. However, in darker skin patients, one of the variants you may see is this hyperpigmented variant, where it's not, it's not salmon colored and it's not hypopigmented, but you really have this brown kind of pigmentation. But it still has that same kind of a clinical appearance where it's in the same areas where you would expect to see tinea versicolor. Um, it does have a little bit of overlying scale and the treatment would be the same as well. Um, treatment for this antifungals, the treatments with, um, with the treatment of this in skin of color patients is no different than in white patients, where you're either going to use topical antifungal creams or, solution, or, or shampoos. Shampoos are sometimes easier for patients to use. I usually have them apply these antifungal shampoos for like two to three minutes in the shower and do that daily for about a week or two until the scaling or the discoloration improves. Um, and then afterwards, for patients who get this repeatedly, I have them do it like maybe once a, uh, once a week as maintenance in order to prevent kind of a recurrence of the condition. Um, the one thing that I would say that you should know in kind of your darker skin patients is that hypopigmentation um, can be much more distressing. Just any, any type of dispigmentation in the skin of color patients can be much more distressing generally, and your patients will be more bothered by the hypopigmentation. So I'm very clear with a lot of these papillosquamous diseases, whether there's hypopigmentation or post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, to kind of discuss the fact that it may take months for this to resolve because what will happen is patients will come back to you and they say like it's not gone and you're like but it's better and they're like no I'm still discolored and so it's really important to kind of kind of manage expectations for patients um, so that they know that this color the, 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 that the discoloration is not permanent um, but that it may take you know weeks or months to go away. Um, confluent and reticulated papillomatosis of Gougereau and Carteau, um, also known as CARP. Um, I put this in here because it also tends to be in the differential for uh, tinea versicolor, um, and it can happen in some of the same areas of involvement. I would say the main clinical differences that you'll see with this is that it does tend to be more papillomatous instead of this very, these very thin kind of scaly macules. Um, and then you will get some kind of um, odd areas of involvement. So you can get involvement in the axilla, you can get involvement in the groin, 
kind, which would be unusual for tinea versicolor. Um, and oftentimes it has this reticulate appearance that you can see in some of these areas, which is distinctly different than what you would see in something like tinea versicolor. Um, it usually happens in young adults. Um, you typically will see, they say the mean age of incidence is about 15 years, 15 years old, but I would say teens and kind of um, to early 30s is when I've seen it. It is reported in all ethnic groups, and as I said, you kind of get this hyperpigmented appearance. Um, there is this rare hypopigmented um, uh, variant, which is why sometimes it can be confused with tinea versicolor. Um, if you do a KOH, it's negative for fungus, um, but the main thing about this is that it doesn't respond to antifungals. So there's no scale, the KOH is negative, you treat them with an the antifungal because you think they have tinea versicolor and it doesn't get better. Um, this, however, does really well on oral tetracyclines. So minocycline um, once daily or doxycycline once daily done for six to two, uh, 12 weeks can clear these people um, completely. Um, one of the concerns is that it can recur, but you can always re uh, re uh, uh, repeat treatment or sometimes switch to topical antimicrobials anti such as clindamycin or erythromycin. And so progressive macular hypomelanosis is also in this differential. Um, this is actually seen more commonly in um, skin of color patients. And that might be just because, again, when you have hypopigmentation in someone who's darker skinned, it's more noticeable. And so this is a condition where you have this ill-defined kind of round patches that usually happen um, on the lower back in contrast to tinea versus color and sometimes on the abdomen. Um, there is no scale with this condition, and typically patients will complain of having this for years. They have had it for years, they've been treated for tinea versicolor, they use ketoconazole shampoo every day in the shower, and it makes no difference. Um, if you think about this, um, you can do kind of a woods light, uh, woods light examination, and you can see this kind of well, they claim, I've never seen it, but they claim that you can see this um, red follicular fluorescence. Um, and they think that P, uh, propiona, propionobacterium acnes plays a role. So in contrast, again, it's the area of involvement. So if you have somebody who has this kind of um, uh, hypopigmentation on the lower back, on the um, abdomen, these areas that would be kind of unusual for a tinea versicolor, this is something that you should think about. And again, you're kind of seeing these very subtle kind of hypopigmented macules in these areas of invo involvement. Um, one clinical clue that I also sometimes find in these patients, in particular if it's been, as they said, it's progressive because it gets worse over years, is they may have this large patch of involvement or a patch of hypopigmentation with these satellite kind of areas of um, hypopigmentation next to it. So again, if you see this large kind of, uh, kind of uh, patch of hypopigmentation, you should think of this progressive macular hypo hypomelanosis as opposed to something like tinea versicolor. Um, and this is that follicular red fluorescence that I said I have never seen. I've tried over and over again. I've never seen it, but one of these days. So the treatments, because P. acnes is um, thought to be thought to play a role, a lot of the treatments are um, kind of acne treatments. So you can do a benzoyl peroxide wash. You can do topical clindamycin in these areas. Phototherapy actually works very well for these patients. So doing narrowband UVB two to three times a week for several months can be effective. Um, the issue is that it can recur. Um, so a lot of times what I find for these patients is that they're not necessarily looking for a treatment. Some of them are, but they're looking for reassurance that something's not wrong 
with them, that they don't have vitiligo, that their entire, you know, that their entire body isn't going to kind of go through this process. And so a lot of times if you can just reassure them that this is what it is, it's not anything dangerous, um, and that it's usually limited to kind of like the abdomen and lower back, most patients will be fine with that. And of course, if you're unsure, biopsying can be um, helpful. Um, and biopsy can be helpful in that you can rule out other things that can be concerning, such as hypopigmented mycosis fungoides, sarcoid, um, leprosy. There are lots of things that can be hypopigmented on the skin that you can be concerned about. Um, pityriasis alba, speaking of things that cause kind of light discoloration on the skin, um, is a form of eczema that usually um, happens in kids, um, where they get these hypopigmented, very kind of um, mildly scaly um, areas, typically on the face, but you can also get it on the trunk um, and extremities. Um, this does happen with, an, happen with an increased incidence in darker skin populations, and as I said, it usually affects children. The treatments, luckily for this, is usually gentle skincare. So you're just going to recommend moisturizers. So start moisturizing the skin with thick moisturizers. We talked about kind of what kind of thick moisturizers to think about um, in an earlier talk. Um, I, as I said, I like anything that comes in a jar, and that's kind of what I tell patients. So it does not matter to me what you use. It can be lard. It can be Vaseline. It can be Crisco. Whatever you would like to use that's greasy, that's what you use in these kind of patients. Um, Making sure also if patients have itch or a little or some symptoms, you can consider doing a low potency topical steroid, or as I mentioned before, um, um, non-steroidal agents such as protopic or Elidel can be helpful in a lot of these types of conditions. Um, and I put this um, slide up here. I'm not sure how well it is uh, showing up there, but just thinking about this differ differential diagnosis of hypopigmented carp, but just generally this, this differential diagnosis of hypopigmentation on the um, skin of darker skinned uh, individuals. Um, and I think, you know, we've gone over the tinea versicolor, the carp, the post-inflammatory hypopigmentation, um, P. alba, but not forgetting things like mycosis fungoides, or sarcoidosis, or leprosy in these patients. So my, you know, one of my recommendations is that if you have a patient who's not responding to treatment as you would think that they should res respond, or their presentation is a little bit funny, don't hesitate to biopsy. Biopsying is fine. If you biopsy tinea versicolor, I mean, okay, if you biopsy tinea versicolor, it's fine. Um, and so this is a picture of actually hypopigmented mycosis fungoides um, in a patient. And this is actually a picture of sarcoid in a patient. But you can see they both have this kind of hypopigmented um, patches, but they're kind of unusual features. This one has a, you know, a couple of these kind of more papules within the, uh, within the patches. And this patient has erythema. And as I said, most of the time in a lot of these other conditions that we talked about earlier, uh, erythema is not going to be a prominent feature. All right, so we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk about the eczemas. So I call eczema kind of a wastebasket term. It's kind of a term we use for like itchy rash generally. Um, but there are lots of different forms of um, eczema, such as atopic dermatitis, stasis dermatitis. Um, we're going to talk about atopic dermatitis um, specifically. Um, today when it um, comes to skin of color patients. Um, they call it the itch that rashes. Um, so acutely, a lot of times you're going to have this kind of, um, uh, they talk about erythema and edema um, that will then kind of progress into scaling and lichenification. 
So atopic dermatitis, we've you know, talked about this a little bit today as well, and you probably have had some other talks uh, during the conference, but it's this chronic disease um, with a remitting and relapsing course. Um, we say that 30% of children have atopic dermatitis and 10% of adults, um, and that 90% of patients have it mild to moderate disease. It's associated with the atopic uh, triad, which is atopic dermatitis, asthma, and allergic rhinitis. Um, the AAD has these guidelines of essential findings in, for general, um, for general uh, patients with atopic dermatitis. And the number one kind of finding is itch. And then the second one is this kind of um, chronic or relapsing history as well as the involvement in flexural areas um, in particular in adults. But um, associated features, which um, you, you can find in particular in skin of color patients, would be the Denny Morgan line. So those are those kind of under eye lines that you see. You can see uh, perifollicular accentuation. Lichenification of perigo may be a more, um, a more prominent finding in skin of color patients. Um, hyperlinear palms, ichthyosis, or kind of dryness of the skin may also be features that you'll see more frequently in your skin of color patients who have um, atopic dermatitis. And this is just a picture of those Denny Morgan lines and a hyperlinear palm. So atopic dermatitis in different skin types can have different, uh, different kind of forms and different appearances. I think that the main thing that we've been talking about is this kind of lack of erythema. So this is kind of like a schematic of different skin types with um, uh, uh, infants who have uh, atopic dermatitis. And you can see in the lighter skin infant, you can see the redness quite um, notably. Um, but in a darker skin individual, you don't see the redness as prominently. And as a matter of fact, if you, you know, kind of quick glance, you might think that this patient has normal skin until you start seeing, even in this infant, the infant's starting to develop some lichenification in that area of involvement as well. So important distinctions in skin of color um, patients. Um, so we talk about African-American children, um, they're 1.7 times more likely to develop atopic dermatitis. And when you look at the kind of demographics of um, children um, with uh, atopic dermatitis, um, African-American children are much more common to have it in comparison to other ethnic types. So 20% of African-Americans, 13% of Asians, 13% uh, of Native Americans, 12% of um, white children, and 10.7% of Hispanic children. Um, and they're also more likely to have treatment-resistant disease, which is important when thinking about treating these patients. Um, when you think clinically, one clinical subtype what I, that I find that some people miss is this popular eczema subtype that is much more common in skin of color patients where they don't have the scaling um, that you would typically see with, um, with uh, atopic dermatitis or any other type of eczema. But instead, they develop these little small little papules um, that are very itchy and then will sometimes then progress into like more traditional um, scaling that you see in um, atopic derm. Um, as you said, erythema may be absent, but what things that may also be found are the kind of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation um, or scaling. Lichenification um, can be um, quite significant in the skin of color patients. And we briefly talked about that earlier, whether that has to do something with, you know, the difference in the pathways that may occur in um, patients of color or perhaps um, different perceptions of itch. In any case, Itching, um, this itching can lead to uh, significant sequelae. So the lichenification that you can see in this patient or the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation that you can see in both of these patients can be quite upsetting. And it's something that you have to address or at least address in speaking to the patient about it when you're treating these patients to make sure that they're satisfied with their treatment. 
And not only can post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation uh, occur, but in patients who have severe atopic dermatitis or severe uh, itching of any type, post-inflammatory hypopigmentation can occur. And I will say that most of the times when I've seen this, I've seen it in kind of areas overlying bony prominences. So like overlying the um, shins, sometimes overlying kind of like the elbows. So treatments. So I mean, we know uh, most of us have treated patients with atopic dermatitis or eczema in the past. Um, gentle cleansers, thick moisturizers. We talked about that already. Um, some of the some of the uh, recommendations, such as avoiding hot showers or baths, um, I do recommend. Also, um, I will say that sometimes people make this distinction of not using washcloths um, or uh, bathing less frequently. I put this in kind of bold because I do think that culturally, sometimes you have to be careful about making these types of recommendations because you will sometimes get some pushback. So washcloths are sometimes very commonly used in some um, ethnic populations. And if you tell somebody not to use a washcloth, they're going to look at you like, so you want me to be dirty? Like, what do you mean? I'm not going to be clean unless I use a washcloth. So I, 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 would, I, I make that point to say that if a patient is resistant about making some of these recommendations or you know, changing some of these things, such as like using a, not using a washcloth or maybe uh, bathing every other day, um, I will make sure that they're following some of the other recommendations uh, more stringently. So like, yes, that means you need a greasier kind of um, moisturizer or making sure that you're using a mild cleanser. Um, so as far as topical steroids, one point that I use, you know, as far as um, recommendations for topical steroids, I find that people are afraid of topical steroids. I think there's a lot of like hysteria around, oh, this risk of atrophy, this risk of hypopigmentation. You have to be pretty abusive of topical steroids to get some of these side effects, in particular on kind of normal areas of the body that aren't intertriginous or on the face. So in particular, because atopic dermatitis does tend to have a higher severity in skin of color patients, I do tend to be a, li a little bit more aggressive with my treatment, where if they have evidence of lichenification, I'm moving right to a, a class one topical steroid. So I'm using clobetasol or hal halobetasol. And I don't use it for a week. I'm using it for two or three weeks sometimes to really get these areas out of, out of, under control. And then um, I do tend to do maintenance therapy for a lot of patients, because what will happen with a lot of your some of my patients is that you treat them and they, you know, they do the treatment for two weeks and then what happens? Like they're like, well, I treat it for two weeks and then a couple of days later, my rash is back again. And so, and a lot of these patients, what I'll have them do is do topical steroids maybe two, two times a week. So maybe a Monday and a Thursday or whatever days that, that they want to choose, again, to kind of maintain the clearance in those areas that tend to rebound. Um, there are a number of different kind of systemic therapies that can be used, phototherapy, methotrexate, Celsept, prednisone, um, dupilumab obviously is a, the newest one. Um, and what I just put at the bottom is don't be, hesitate to use more aggressive therapy in your patients who aren't responding. So if you're doing bleach baths, if you're doing, you know, uh, if you're doing topical steroids and your patient isn't doing well, don't hesitate to try to, to do, uh, at least give them options of more aggressive therapies that can be used. All right, so psoriasis. Um, so psoriasis, again, something that we see quite commonly. We talk about these well-demarcated um, patch or plaques um, with overlying white scale um, that can also have, it, it can also affect other parts of the body, including the nails. Um, lots of different forms of psoriasis based on appearance and location. So, you know, when we, you know, I always say, some of these descriptions I put up here because 
when we are taught dermatology, we're taught dermatology and how it looks in lighter skin. So all the descriptions are based on what it looks like in, in lighter skin. So we talk about these red plaques and papules um, with adherent um, silvery scale. But obviously in darker skin patients, you might not see that redness. You might not see um, you know, any erythema at all. Or sometimes erythema may be more violation. So you might have more of this purple appearance in the skin. Um, we're gonna talk about that a little bit later. The, when they talk about kind of psoriasis in skin of color patients, um, there is a lower prevalence in, um, of psoriasis in skin of color patients, where they said that the prevalence in Caucasians is 3.6%, in African Americans is 1.9%, in Hispanics is 1.6%. But this, again, may be due to underreporting. We talked about earlier that there may be an issue where, where skin of color patients aren't going to the dermatologist or maybe are being um, treated by their primary care physicians. So there's an um, element of underreporting or uh, potentially underdiagnosis. Um, with these um, subtypes, this is just a kind of showing kind of like the gut state psoriasis where you're having um, more of that kind of small um, uh, appearance. And then for inverse psoriasis, um, again, you may have these, you might, you're not going to see the typical scale that you're going to see because it's in these areas that are more moist. I like the word moist. Everybody hates it. <laughs> but um, so you're going to have that, you know, you can potentially have that erythema, um, but in your skin of color patients, you're not going to see that erythema. You probably will see just hyperpigmentation that's kind of uh, persistent and may be associated with the symptoms of itch that you can sometimes see with psoriasis. Um, nail changes, you can see kind of the onycholysis, um, uh, which is like the distal lifting of the nail, um, oil spots, which is kind of like those red appearances on the nail, or nail pits, or general dystrophy. In skin of color patients, as I mentioned earlier, erythema may be absent. So if you look at this kind of side by side, um, this patient um, with psoriasis has no erythema at all. They just have scaling, um, but they have scaling in those areas that may be typical of psoriasis. Um, and this is another patient with psoriasis. Um, again, you might see this and not guess psoriasis initially because there's no, um, there's no erythema. Um, and as a matter of fact, some of these patches have some of that kind of uh, purple appearance that might make you think of lichen planus or some other condition. So, I mean, these are some of the difficulties that you sometimes run into when trying to treat um, psoriasis, or excuse me, papillosquamous diseases in skin of color patients. Um, scalp psoriasis, again, sometimes can be something that may be misdiagnosed in uh, patients of color. Um, and part of that is just, you know, we, uh, uh, Dr. Okoye kind of mentioned the idea of doing like a proper kind of um, scalp exam, but also just because they, there's no erythema. I think that um, even diagnosing sc um, uh, scalp psoriasis in all populations can sometimes be difficult because there's like an overlap. You have some patients where you're like, do you have really bad seborrheic dermatitis or do you have scalp psoriasis? Um, and you sometimes can make that diagnosis more easily in lighter skin populations because there's a lot of erythema or maybe there'll be a very well demarcated plaque. Um, but in your darker skin populations, it may not be as easy. Um, and so again, you might want to look for the other sequela of, uh, or other signs rather of psoriasis, such as nail pitting, asking about rashes on other areas of the body, in particular when you have a patient of color who comes in with more diffuse scale than you would think would be normal for seborrheic dermatitis. Um, the other thing is that it's a little yellow up here, but the other thing that you might think that we want to think about in your skin of color patients is that there can be a lot of uh, clinical mimics. So you can get sarcoid that can cause some redness on the scalp in patients of color, um, and that's something to think about. And then also, scalp psoriasis can look very funny on skin of color patients, where you can get very hyperpigmented um, patches. And so, again, if there's any confusion or any question, a biopsy is always an option. 
Um, as has been a recurring theme, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation is a, um, can be a huge um, issue in your skin of color patients, even with psoriasis. So even after the kind of resolution of the patches in your skin of color patients, you may find that they're they'll come in and complain that they're, they're not better. Like, I still have these areas, and it's really just post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So when you're treating kind of like a papillosquamous disease in your skin of color patients, again, I think it's really good to kind of make sure that you're addressing kind of their expectations for what treatment is. So if you're treating atopic dermatitis, your itch will get better, your scale will get better. If you're treating psoriasis, your scaling will get better. Your skin, you know, you won't have as much thickness to your skin, but the discoloration in your skin that's there may last for several months. So treatments are um, varied. Um, you're talking about topical steroids. I mean, you can do a whole lecture on the treatments for psoriasis alone. We already actually had one earlier. Um, but topical steroids, um, phototherapy, topical antifungals, methotrexate, um, acetrate, and apremolescent, different biologics. Um, one thing that I want to mention is that making the kind of black psoriasis patients in biologics, um, when you look at black patients um, in the United States, black patients are 70% less likely to receive biologics in comparison to their white um, counterparts. Um, and this may be for a number of reasons. We kind of mentioned earlier um, there, that sometimes there's a lack of familiarity in certain populations with biologics. So I think that it's, you know, kind of, uh, it, it is our responsibility to make sure that we are giving appropriate recommendations to our patients and letting patients know about all of the options that are available to them. So if a, you know, a patient has really bad psoriasis and they're not responding to a topical steroid or they have enough body surface area involvement um, that they um, uh, would qualify for a biologic, making sure that you address it with them. I think that also one, they didn't kind of mention it in this, but I think that one of the hindrances for patients using biologics is sometimes kind of mistrust of the medical field just because of the history in our country of um, kind of studies that have been done in um, uh, uh, populations of color and black patients specifically. And so I think really kind of going into the side effects kind of um, Going into the side effects of these medications um, in detail, but also making sure that patients know that these side effects are mostly um, kind of rare, because obviously if you tell a patient, oh, let's start Humira, but the risks are cancer, uh, you know, infection, et cetera, most patients who have no familiar, uh, familiarity with these medications may decide not to use them. So I think it's really important to kind of giving them the gamut of information, but also giving them percentages. It's like you have like a 1% risk or less of developing an infection. You have a 1% risk or, or less of developing um, cancer so patients aren't put off um, so quickly with using some of these medications. So other nuances um, that, you know, we talked about, um, the consider kind of clinical mimickers of psoriasis, as we talked about, because a lot of times psoriasis and skin of color can have that purple appearance. You may have to think about lichen planus. Um, occasionally, um, discoid lupus can look like a psoriasis in skin of color patients. Um, when treating skin of color patients, it's the same thing that we talked about before, in particular when you're talking about scalp psoriasis, you have to think about the impact of their hair texture. Are they using heat to straighten their hair? Um, is their hair natural or untreated? Um, how, frequently they how frequently they wash their hair? Um, and then also thinking about potential kind of traditional and um, cultural therapies that may be used. Um, so some people use cupping, some people do coining, um, and in particular with psoriasis, the, it, you know, the risk of cabinerization is great. So kind of addressing these specific therapies and the risk of um, worsening of their disease are important things to think about as well. 
And then so lastly, we'll talk about lichen planus. Um, so lichen planus, uh, the basics, you know, they talk about the P's of lichen planus, this peritic, planar, polygonal, purple patches um, that usually happen on um, uh, flexural um, surfaces. Um, but you can have other areas of involvement. Obviously, you can have involvement of the, um, uh, of the scalp, uh, perifollicularly. You can have oral involvement, genital involvement, um, involvement of the palms and um, soles. They talk about Wickham striae which you can actually see on this other slide, where you kind of get this lace-like kind of pigment, uh, lace-like uh, pattern on areas of involvement. It's usually most easily seen on the oral mucosa, uh, but you can see it pretty easily on the genital mucosa. If you use a dermatoscope, you can sometimes actually see it on areas of involvement on the skin. You can also have nail changes, as I said. So if you have a patient who has lichen planus, main things to do is they have, if you have a patient who has lichen planus, is also to ask about other areas of involvement. And examine their skin, examine their oral mucosa, examine their, or at least ask them about genital symptoms to make sure that they don't have a, um, involvement in other areas that they may not actually specifically tell you about. Um, there is this association with hepatitis. Um, they, you know, so we do sometimes check H, uh, HCV and HPV. Um, and then there's an association with drugs. So there are a number of um, drugs and medications that can cause um, lichen planus um, in patients. So obviously no, people aren't using gold as often, but hydrochlorothiazide, NSAIDs, aspirins, beta blockers, um, Lasix. Um, dental implants are actually an important cause of lichen planus in patients. Um, and so that's one of the things that usually you have a patient in particular who comes in with um, uh, oral lichen planus is asking about recent dental work. Do they have implants? Because sometimes that can be a driver for it in these patients as well. Um, the important thing to think about when you're thinking about lichenoid drug reactions is that lichenoid drug reactions are not like other dr drug reactions where it typically happens within two weeks of starting the medication. Lichenoid drug reactions can um, happen six months, or even um, longer, sometimes years after starting the medication. So I always make sure to do a kind of a thorough um, drug history in patients who kind of come in with this diagnosis. Um, again, recurring theme, there is less erythema in lichen, uh, uh, for, um, in lichen planus in darker skinned individuals. So even though they talk about the P's where they talk about this polygonal purple kind of appearance, I always think of it more of like a fuchsia. It's not real purple when you're talking about it in kind of lighter skinned individuals, but in darker skinned individuals, it can be actually like this very deep violaceous purple. Um, and again, happening in kind of areas that are common. And you can see here, again, that deep, kind of very violaceous, nearly kind of black appearance in some of these areas of involvement. Chemnerization is a common finding in lichen planus generally in patients where in areas of trauma you have the lichen planus appear. So you can actually see pretty good examples of that chemnerization, I can say this word, chemnerization um, in these patients. Um, again, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation can be significant in all skin types, to be perfectly honest. But um, this, so this is a lighter skin patient who kind of has this reddish brown pigmentation, and then this kind of darker skin patient who has this like deep purple pigmentation. And the unfortunate thing about lichen planus is that when treating with these patients, it can take years for this pigmentation to kind of resolve. Um, and so oftentimes I tend to be, for my lichen planus patients, in particular if they have more significant or more um, uh, larger body surface areas,
areas of involvement, I tend to be fairly aggressive in treatment of them just because of this risk, because there aren't great treatments of this. Hydroquinone isn't touching this. Cysteamine isn't touching these. None, most of the treatments that we use topically for um, pigmentation will not do anything for these types, of the, for the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation that occurs as a result of um, lichen planus or lichenoid reactions in general. And as I said here, making sure that you're examining other areas of the body um, and looking for um, evidence of that. So with treatment, um, as I said, I tend to be much more aggressive um, with uh, treatment of lichen planus in, my, in all of my patients, but particularly in my skin of color patients. Um, steroids are, top, are, are kind of like the first line of treatment. Um, and again, I use class one or class two topical steroids. So I'm using clobetazole, halobetazole, betamethasone, and I'm doing that twice daily for like three to four weeks and then doing this, again, this kind of regimen where you're doing it for three to four weeks, you take a break for one to two weeks, and you restart it again if they're continuing to have involvement. Um, for patients who have widespread involvement, um, narrow band UVB or phototherapy can be very um, helpful. Um, I personally had lichen, uh, lichen planus, and it was horrible. I was super itchy. Um, and I tried topical steroids for like a month, and I was like, this is not working. And I had my colleague make me, uh, write me a prescription to go to the light box because, and it actually worked beautifully. And the benefit for using lichen, um, for using a phototherapy for lichen planus is also that it can prevent new areas of involvement potentially. Because obviously when you're doing kind of more focal treatment, you're only treating, treating the area involvement and you're not really doing anything as far as prevention. Um, and for some patients with lichenoid dermatitides, um, like when you get the kind of general kind of tanning that can occur or darkening of the skin that can occur with uh, phototherapy, it kind of evens out some of that dispigmentation that can occur with the disease as well. Um, ret oral retinoids can also be used. Um, topical immuno um, immunomodulators such as like -top topical tacrolimus or um, pemacrolimus. I will only use that in the subtype of lichen planus pigmentosus. I don't find that it's helpful for actually true kind of lichen planus. Um, uh, the number one kind of, uh, the, well, actually, actually two treatments that I do for kind of systemically for these patients include salcept and uh, methotrexate. So for patients who have widespread lichen planus, in particular if they have involvement of the nails, I found that nail disease tends to be very resistant to most treatments, um, and so I will do um, uh, salcept. And I think that actually if you're looking for something that's going to shut down if you're looking for something that's going to shut down lichenoid kind of inflammation in most patients, a cell sept is the way to go. Um, and the way that I use it is I usually start at patients at 500 milligrams twice a day and then increase them to like the gold dose of 1,000 milligrams twice daily. Um, nail disease responds beautifully to this. Lichen planus pilaris actually responds beautifully um, to this as well. Um, and then methotrexate and plaquenil are two other treatments that I will kind of pursue. Um, I do that based on patients of, you know, kind of um, willingness to kind of assume the risk. You know, clearly using something like CELSEP can be um, scary for a lot of patients. So some patients want something that's a little less potentially immunosuppressive. So then in those patients, I'll use um, methotrexate or, um, or um, uh, hydroxychloroquine. Um, so the takeaway points generally um, are that in patients of color, in particular when you're thinking of, pap of papillosquamous disease, um, erythema is not going to be as, um, as noticeable. And so because of that, and because it may appear more violaceous or hyperpigmented, you have, you're going to have a wider differential diagnosis. So you're going to have to think about those kind of other features of these diseases, such as things that happen on the extensive surfaces. Where is it happening? What are the symptoms that are associated with the disease? Um, important in your skin of color patients is thinking, making sure that you at least address the issue of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation or hypopigmentation. Because 
as I said, I've had it time and time again, whether you're treating papillosquamous disease or you're treating acne, you have your patient come in and you're like, oh, you look so much better. And they're like, but I'm not better. Um, and that's because they're thinking that the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and hypopigmentation is supposed to resolve with treatment. So making sure that you address that very clearly is important in it to kind of engender kind of confidence. Um, thinking about the, you know, the, the, the potential of increased severity for patients when they present to you. Um, so with psoriasis, with atopic dermatitis, making sure that you address the fact that they may, more, may be more severe at baseline and also making sure that you're offering them a wide variety of treatments. Um, and about thinking about scalp disease in skin of color patients, again, you're thinking about hair texture, styling practices, washing frequency, and then choosing an appropriate vehicle for a topical steroid. And then, as always, if a disease doesn't respond to therapy as you would expect based on what you think it may be going on, don't be afraid to biopsy. And that is the end. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Uh, okay, so questions. So there is a ketoconazole gel that is glycerin-based. Would you consider using that for your patients with drier hair? Um, I would. You know, the issue with the ketoconazole gel is that it's usually not covered by insurance, so that was that's usually been my main um, kind of hindrance. Um, but if it would be a consideration. As I said, I, I know Dr. Okoye said that she does not use ketoconazole, I do. Um, but as I said, I use it in such a way that I, I have um, patients only use it for a short period of time and not on the entire shaft of the hair. Um, for progressive macular hypomelanosis, have you used blue light PDT? Um, I'm wondering if this would be useful for with potential P acne's components. I have not used that. Um, as I said, most patients that I have come in with that, they just want to make sure that they're okay and they're not they're not typically kind of that uh, uh, fond or looking for specific treatment, um, but. And I haven't actually seen any research or any papers about using blue light, but it's a good idea. It's, I mean, it would be a potential. Um, what is your opinion on the use of kojic acid for PIH? Um, so my opinion is that I think that kojic acid used in conjunction with hydroquinone may be helpful. I don't think that kojic acid on its own is all that helpful, um, not, uh, not alone. Um, but what I will have patients do sometimes is if they're using that on top of something, using, using like hydroquinone, for instance, and sunscreen and retinoids, I think that it can be a potential um, uh, helpful uh, adjunct therapy. Um, do you ever use oral metronidazole for lichen planets? I do not. Um, I find that lichen, I find that for me at least, that even for lichen planets that occurs in the scalp, um, it responds, it seems to respond better to oral tetracyclines, but in, in patients who have very severe disease, you really have to actually use quite aggressive uh, treatments to get that inflammation under control. Um, 
do, how long do you keep patients on self-sub 500 milligrams BID before increasing the dosage, and how often are you monitoring labs, and which labs? So for self-sub, um, usually I do 500, 500 milligrams twice daily for one week, and then I increase them to 1,000 milligrams um, twice daily. Um, I will have them, when I do monitoring labs, I do the baseline labs, and the baseline labs include kind of the baseline labs that you would normally do for most biologics or any type of immunosuppressive medications. So you're checking your CBC, your CMP, your quantiferin gold, your hep B, hep C, and um, I think that's everything. And so when I'm doing monitoring labs, I usually do the first monitoring labs one week after starting completing that the kind of 500 milligrams twice daily. And the monitoring labs are a CBC and a CMP is what I typically do. Um, and then after that, I usually check labs again at two weeks and then one month. And then after that, I do every three months um, if they're doing fine. The reason why I like CELSUP generally is that most patients tolerate it very well outside of having um, a little bit, some patients have a little bit of stomach upset or GI upset or diarrhea with it. Um, do you see a lot of retinoid dermatitis resulting in hyperpigmentation? Um, not personally, but that's because I don't tend to, I tend to be very, in my skin of color patients when using um, topical retinoids, I tend to be um, very uh, um, kind of uh, judicious with the use of it. So essentially, I always start patients on um, 0.025% or 0.05% tretinoin, and I am very clear on my instructions for how patients should use it. Um, I tell patients that they should only use a pea-sized amount, and essentially I do that because patients, you know, usually we're using it for acne, but, you know, patients with acne want their acne to get better, and they think that if they use more of it, it's going to work better, which isn't true. Um, so I make sure that they know you're only using a pea-sized amount, that's for your, and that pea-sized amount is for your entire face. You're going to start it out every other week or excuse me, every other day. You're gonna do that every other day for about two to three weeks. And then after that point, if you realize that your skin is no longer getting dry or irritated, you can slowly start to titrate up. So that is kind of one of the ways that I avoid um, getting that retinoid dermatitis. I find that retinoid dermatitis usually occurs when people are just starting out topical retinoids very, uh, you know, every day um, initially. And how about Cycloperox shampoo? Um, I don't necessarily think that cycloperic shampoo is better tolerated in skin color patients. I personally think that most um, uh, anti-dandruff shampoos, whether it's tar or salicylic acid or, you know, or ketoconazole or cycloperox, are drying. They're not great shampoos. That's not what they're designed to do. They're designed to treat the scalp. Um, so I will use cycloperox um, shampoo in, uh, in my skin color patients, but I still use it in the same way where it's just used for the scalp and then they use another shampoo for the body of their hair. And I think that that's it. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.